say, kids, what time is that? The future is coming on, it's coming on, it's coming on, it's coming on, it's coming on. Hey, folks, welcome to the show this week. Up in the hills above Boulder Creek. Windy day today. We are at our home studio. Mrs. Future is with That's us. That's right. At the board. Yeah. And we're just getting Bobby online. We've been having some wind issues. <laughs> affecting our oh, phone and, and stuff. That's right. So Massive re- weather re- coming in. That. Winter does like to begin. Sometime in November. Right. <laughs> we got a good show. We had an interesting experience yesterday where we went to the Brema Center in Santa Cruz and met Dr. Alexandra Johnson, had a great experience with her. So we're going to be talking to her in the second hour of the show about Brema and the wisdom of Brema, which is a, a fascinating tradition. It's a healing modality that is non-diagnostic and yet can be very powerful in helping people to listen to their body and understand how to bring about their own conditions of harmony and healing. The kind of stuff we like. It's very personal, individualized, holistic health practice. And we really had a beautiful connection with one of the teachers of Brema here in the Bay Area. So we're going to be talking with her on the second hour of the show. Yeah, and I think we have Bobby on the line now. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think it's really nice that we got it all going before 111 here in this month where we just celebrated 1111. Did you do anything cosmic for 1111, Bobby? I'm seeing 1111 all the time now. It's crazy. What does that tell you? I don't know. I think something's happening. Something's about to happen. Yeah. Uh Okay. Our ascension will unfold and we will take the next step in our cosmic evolution. Well, I'll tell you what happened. All the digital clocks. I'll tell you what happened in New York City. What happened? On November 13th. Uh-huh. Joby Aviation, our local uh, EV tall company, uh-huh. and uh, the German company Volocopter gave the public a vivid glimpse of what the future of aviation might look like with both these companies doing demo flights of their electric aircraft over New York City. Woohoo! Yeah. Volocopters in wow. New York. Press conference on Sunday. New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced that the city would electrify two of its three heliports in Manhattan the downtown Manhattan heliport and East 34th Street. And the third one is privately owned. So there's a company also mm-hmm. that was demonstrating their technologies, uh, beta technologies that showed off their new interoperable aircraft charging technology so that the eVTOLs could recharge as they take you over to JFK, the airport. They say that with this technology in place, that the average trip to the JFK International Airport from downtown Manhattan would be about seven minutes. Seven minutes. They're going to have 3D wow. traffic jams. That's my prediction. Three third-dimensional traffic jams <laughs> well, right above the course, old but, traffic jams. But come on, Mrs. Future, this is like the introduction <laughs> of flight itself. I mean, this is huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you tell them, Bobby. Wow. Yeah. The, the, yeah. I, I, <laughs> this changes everything. I, mean, I know, you know right? you could, If you could... You could have them pick you up in your backyard and take you to the JFK. Like, right. Incredible. It puts the airports more accessible. Everything more accessible means yeah. you use it more. And if it's cheap enough. And, and, 
Yeah. And the congestion from traffic would be reduced. And Yeah, yeah. Traffic would uh, definitely be reduced. Air traffic is preferable to those crowded freeways down there. And certainly in terms of the uh, airwaves. You're still going to be off the ground. And if you go flying in your VTOL every day, are you going to wear your parachute backpack? No, but the... But <laughs> like, the, is that your sa- your new safety belt? <laughs> could, that would be funny, wouldn't it? Uh-huh. No, I think it would be more likely that the aircraft will have a ballistic chute. Oh, so the car yeah. will be yeah. wearing yeah. an airbag. Yeah, a, yeah. A space, it'll be an aircraft parachute rather than an individual backpack. Yeah, parachute. exactly, exactly. Yeah. A paraglider. <laughs> a paraglider, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what the individuals can have. Or maybe your flight suit can be like a squirrel flight costume. Yeah. Right. Oh. <laughs> in case you need to get to the ground from 400 feet up in the air, right? Well, it also could uh, push a button and morph the ship into a glider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? that's one of the things yeah. we're expecting from Joby, for sure, with yeah. his patented wing. The yeah. propeller can be a wing. Go to model, <laughs> go to that one. But I believe that Joby has at least 12 rotors, and they're our backup software programs to deal with failure of many of them. If suddenly half of them went out, how the ship would handle that. Mm. You know, I think the technology is being evolved for that. Boy, it's so like we'll if you don't trust the autopilot on a Tesla, how are you going to trust the autopilot on a VTOL? Uh, well, in some ways really, it's easier. You're going to have to have second sight, yeah. like prescience. You're going to have to know whether you can get in that vehicle or not. <laughs> trust. Trust all comes down to trust, doesn't it? You got to trust your own fifth dimensional unfoldment and know this is not my day to die. Right. Not being ruled by fear particularly. I I like it because it does have wings that do fold. So it could glide a little bit. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. But what if it glides into one of those New York City skyscrapers? What if, Mrs. Future, what if it went into the (laughs) Hudson? Don't I sound sure? What if it went into the ocean? What if it hit another airplane? What if? Mrs. Sunny Future. Jeez. I mean, come on, this is future. Well, you know, you like to do sci-fi. These are sci-fi. I've been immersing in a lot of sci-fi like, remind, movies lately. You might know the dweebs are saying, I prefer cautionary tales because I'm very afraid of everything. <laughs> I'm not afraid. I'm okay. Just, I'm just speculating What here. if? Yeah, let's have a fun what if then, okay? <laughs> okay. What if, what if, what if King Kong from the top of the, of the Empire State Building grabs it? And sets it down gently at JFK. It would only delay the flight yeah, by a there couple minutes. Now we're thinking. How's that for optimism? I like that. <laughs> oh, you know another interesting thing about Joby? Is that they have decided on where to build their next factory. You know, one that really will create hundreds of them. That's cool. Yeah. It's going to be in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, Dayton, Ohio. where we just visited. Oh, really? Right. What the home of Dayton? the Wright that, Brothers. That's where the, the Wright Brothers, Brothers live. That's right. Yeah. That's and where we had so much fun checking out the Wright Brothers Museum there. Yeah. All uh, right. So aircraft factory in Dayton, Ohio. From Kitty Hawk to Joby's VTOL aircrafts in New York. And they get $325 million of state incentives and benefits to come to Ohio. Gotta love Ohio. So. You know, uh-huh. it's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad the states have all that money for exploring new vehicles of flight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the eVTOL industry overall is benefiting from some major tailwinds right now. Climate commitments from a dozen cities, including New York City, where there is a, a drive to aggressively reduce carbon emissions, moving towards more clean energy. And these represent that. 
you know, because they're battery tall. powered. Right, right. New York City, for example, is aiming to reduce emissions by eighty percent from a baseline established back in 05 by 2050, 80% by 2050. Hmm. And electrifying their heliports is under that jurisdiction. So if their baseline is from 2005, like what are to they doing now? No, but well, is it they're, higher they're, or they're lower? electrifying teleports as part of the hmm. process of reducing emissions. Okay, well, good luck. I hope that we have less pollution on the planet over time. It seems like we've been soiling our nest and it hurts our health and been anything we can do to improve on that, I'm all in. So next time you're driving to Costco, you'll see him right across the street. Joby used to be the Plantronics building near Costco. And that's now. the HQ. Yeah, that's not the HQ. But mm-hmm. soon. Oh, I didn't know that. I, the next time I go to Costco there in Santa Cruz, I'm going to look for that. That's wow. it. I hope they put yeah. up a museum or something on the history of uh, VTOL. Mm-hmm. That would be fun. Oh, well, that sounds like a proposal in the making there, honey. Well, I, I remember. you got a lot to share with them on that. When we used to visit Dr. Paul Mahler, the aeronautical engineering professor at UC Davis, who had been working on VTOLs, not eVTOLs, but VTOLs for years back in the 70s, mm-hmm. 80s, 90s. He had a little museum at his corporate headquarters Yeah, before Davis. they had figured out the computerization of the synchronized wings, he was doing all the tests to figure out how to get the vertical takeoff and landing to be stable. Yeah, and from mm-hmm. what I know, he was the mentor for many people involved in the eVTOL industry, including... Joe Ben Biver, head of Joby Aviation here in Santa Cruz. Yeah, and yeah, it'd be fun to get his story of that. his young student. Yeah, <laughs> or his mentor. You know, it'd be, be a real kick if Joe Ben gave Paul Mahler a ride in one of the eVTOL craft. Wouldn't that be sweet? That would mm. be awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Homage to I like to, to see one of that the pioneers of eVTOL. Yeah, as Paul had worked so hard for so many years and never really got to the point of commercialization that's just happening now. Yeah. And it's just happening now, just barely, you know, but Joe Ben and is setting the example. That's that. right. So Thus it is with the shoulders of giants, right? Paul would They're uh, the look generation prior to the big breakthroughs. In the EV tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's happening this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, that is a beautiful vehicle, I must say. Isn't that nice? It's yeah. right out of future Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> This week is also an interesting condition on Mars. Oh, really? Mars weather has your attention? Well, we have a number of spacecraft over there. We have rovers on the surface. We have orbiters. And they're going to be kind of incommunicado for the next couple of weeks. Oh, right. There's a limited uh, data coming from them. It's a communications pause. You know why? I do. I only know that because you pointed it out to me. (laughs) So you go ahead and announce it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have the Earth, and then we have the Sun, and then the other side of the Sun right now is the red planet. That's right. Mars the other is side. in the uh. no communication zone on the other side of the Sun because we can't get our signals past the Sun all the way to the well, red planet. Well, we can, but they get corrupted. That's right. They'll be messed up. The computers might, in the Mars vehicles, might think we said something we didn't, and that could be a disaster. Well, you could have a lot of error correction right now on whatever communications you're doing. But this is called the Mars Solar Conjunction. It happens every couple of years, and it pauses the mission because of hot ionized gas from the sun's corona just corrupts uh, radio signals. Yeah. So if Mars is behind mm-hmm. the sun, we may as well just keep our mouth shut. Yeah. But remember, these have a lot of autonomous technology on board, too. So even though they have their mouth shut to us, they are communicating with themselves and possibly each other 
I would sure. imagine the orbiters would still be talking to the rovers. Sure. Yeah. They're still on the same yeah. planet. Yeah. Mars to Mars is doing fine. So they're fine. They're <laughs> going to do all their thing yeah. out there and then save the data. And, you know, and when we can send it to us, they will. But information, they'll be collecting surface weather conditions, uh, radiation, uh, where they are. The helicopter, the Ingenuity helicopter, will be using its camera to look at sand movement. Because mm-hmm. we really need to understand all these sandstorms on Mars. They really have been a disaster to our technology. Mm, yeah, yeah. We don't really do weather very well in our space program. Well, sand uh, storms, <laughs> sandstorms on Mars are particularly vexing. And they cover up solar panels, lenses. How do you wipe them off? You know, that's you don't it. have any water to wipe them. What do you do? Well, you practice uh, at Burning Man, right? Yeah, that's it. The NASA <laughs> that's what, Burning that's Man, what worked for practicing. us. You have to sacrifice <laughs> a Mars few challenge. cameras every year. But you get the feedback, and then you make them better. That's where you're looking forward to the sandstorm as you see it approaching. (laughs) Oh, boy. We get to test out our technology that will save our Odyssey orbiter. (laughs) They just need to talk to Elon and get Starlink for the solar system so that... (laughs) Starlink on Mars. Don't well, you think he has enough outside. to do, though? Poor guy, he's overloaded. Yeah, he's he's gotta, really taken on uh, a big chunk of getting humans to space. It'd be nice if some other geniuses stepped up and yeah. were of as great a service to the future of humanity. I mean, right now, if he was taking subscriptions from Mars, how many would he get? One? <laughs> well, no, remember, I'm sure that if he was taking subscriptions, in fact, yeah. I think, didn't he say... I think he was the one who set the price of a Mars mission to 250000 which was like the price of buying a condo on Mars with a one-way ticket. Yeah, right? instead of buying a house, go to Mars. <laughs> and of course, that means you have to be a Martian astronaut. You have to be healthy enough to endure once you get there, because it's like being a homesteader in a very harsh environment. A homesteader <laughs> living in a metal in a can. metal can on a freezing cold planet with you can't really bad windstorms and less sunlight yeah. and well, not less even gravity. Not go outside. You can't breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Without a so. spacesuit. Right. Exploration may define us as a species, but once you get there, you can't be looking for cush zones. It makes <laughs> the Antarctic look like uh, Maui. Right. But that's yeah. why the plan is to get there with the giant rocket ships, which can basically be hotels for, I think it's 40 people, or I'm not sure I remember the numbers. People. But, 100 people know. on Starship. Uh-huh. Yeah. They're supposed to be testing that this well, month. Well, I think that 100 people can sleep on it, but if you want them to become like tiny homes, you can't have that densely populated. That's more like a airplane passenger list as opposed to a Maximum. cellular passenger list. I put less than or equal to sign in front of 100. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you got to bring more stuff with you if you're never coming back. Yes. <laughs> well, during this pause that's going on right now, a moratorium, they call it, they will hopefully survive and send us a bunch of really cool data after they come back. We're, of course, talking about our vehicles and our satellites, not any people. As far as we know, no people are there yet. (laughs) Surviving. So what they did... Just here. They mostly spent months making to-do lists for the spacecraft for this period. So the scientists behind it all have been very, very good at doing to-do lists for Sure, because every two years they have a solar pause. It's kind of like teachers planning for summer vacation. Yeah, they know it's coming up. you got to do your homework beforehand. Yeah. This week, it was announced that the SETI Institute was gifted $200 million. 
Yeah. 200 million Isn't that amazing? Dollars. Gives that some legitimacy, doesn't it? A scientific research in the search of life beyond Earth, mm-hmm. the SETI Institute. Strategies are such that they now have a pretty decent budget, a philanthropic gift. Who would give them $200 million to study off-world intelligence? Do tell. Yeah. Who would do that? The estate of Franklin Antonio. And he was the co-founder of a communications company called Qualcomm. Oh, yeah. Qualcomm. That was kind oh, yes. of a big one. I, re- I remember that. Yes. Remember Qualcomm? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, they were big with cell phone chips and all kinds yes. of stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's a, always been a visionary supporter of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah. And he passed away last year on May 13th, 2022, and was very into communications as how he could contribute to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Of course, he ran a communications company, and one of his favorite projects that he funded with SETI was the it was called the Allen Array, mm. the Allen Telescope Array, or sure. ATA. Yeah. Yes, in uh, Hat Creek in the Sierras. Yeah, oh, north yeah. of Tahoe. I've often Hat thought Creek. it would be fun to visit that. Uh, yeah, I had a neighbor that went up there and worked. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, he worked on the Leuchner telescope at UC Berkeley, and then he was asked to go up there and take a look at their array and possibly work up there. He decided not to work there. Funny thing, he didn't believe in aliens. <laughs> <laughs> so what's he doing up there? Uh, well, I guess they have a lot of other projects. As a matter of fact, they have six areas they're putting the money into. Extraterrestrial <laughs> intelligence is one of them. SETI is financing 100 scientists working in 173 different research projects, and they're exploring astronomy, astrophysics, exoplanets. They're looking at planetary exploration and astrobiology, climate and biogeoscience, as well as the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The money will be going into those, $200 million. Is that cool? Yeah, wow. that's really awesome. Wow. The core that's of his great. vision was the ET stuff. So that's amazing. I love it. Wow. All right. So you ready to take a little break? Yeah. All right. Be right back. Here's some people who love us. All right. Enjoy. Be right back. Okay. We're back. Okay. We are back. I got a text message saying for us to remember the dust off. (laughs) When we get Um, to Mars, we learned our lessons at Burning Man. Bring your dust off for those dust storms. (laughs) You know, we made this whole video of using a can of dust off with the wizard himself of uh, Emerald City, where he was demonstrating how dust off could handle the dust storm damage. Ha ha. Just one can. Right. Just, yeah, one yeah, can. Just, just one case, right? No, we had one can. We did a convincing demonstration of showing how we could clean things with dust off and dust storm. It's a really ridiculous video, but it was a lot of fun to make. <laughs> Overwhelming odds, I tell you. Well, you can count on those windstorms to dust your solar panels, right? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what kept yeah. opportunity alive for so long? Yeah, how can these windstorms work to our advantage? How are they helping us in our mission? Yeah, well, got a plan for them and be friendly with your dust storms. That's what I say. Exactly. (laughs) NASA has figured out how to use remote sensing technology from space to investigate the Earth. They are now hunting for minerals in the desert with a modified U-2 spy plane. The plane will be flying high over the deserts of America, mostly in California, 
Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico, the Western Desert region, to discover critical mineral deposits. And they have advanced technology, of course, on board that will be doing that. For those of you who are curious about the technology, one is called the A-Virus, A-V-I-R-I-S, and that stands for Airborne Visible Slash Infrared Imaging System Spectrometer, Imaging Spectrometer. Airborne Visible Infrared Imaging Spectrometer. And then they also have what's called the high tes I guess it's like high test gasoline, <laughs> only it's H-Y-T-E-S, <laughs> standing for Hyperspectral Thermal Emission Spectrometer. Hyperspectral Thermal Emission Spectrometer. And another thing called MASTER, which stands for Modus Aster Airborne Simulator. These technologies will allow it to detect hidden mineral deposits using this what they call hyperspectral data. The mission is in partnership with the U.S. Geological Survey and will be looking for critical minerals. Now, what do you think a critical mineral is at this point in time? Remember back in the 40s, it was like uranium. We all need to have uranium. Well, guess what it is today? What do you think? I know because I remembered that it's NLC, like neurolinguistic communication. So N. This is the minerals? Uh, the, nickel, no, 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 nickel, no, no, lithium, no, and cobalt. Nobilium? Huh? Oh, really? Did I get it right? Yes. <laughs> I was paying attention. Yes. Wow. <laughs> lithium, cobalt, and nickel. Now, what do we know about lithium? Lithium is the second element in the periodic table, mm -hmm. and it is used for batteries yes, because batteries. it is a very yes. efficient source of stored electrical energy. Thank you, Mrs. Future. You're welcome. Battery, yes. Yes. batteries, batteries, electronics, <laughs> at least until. <laughs> However, people are really afraid of it because it catches fire and then it's hard to put out because well, that, they yeah. don't have it because water doesn't put it out. Those are the cheap ones. Yeah. They're working on that, right, Bobby? Yes. The latest thing, not only is it sodium batteries, but now it's sulfur batteries. Sulfur batteries. Really? That sounds yeah, stinky. It's, it's, it, it, yeah. They're it's, stinky. But it, but it, but it, it won't blow it, up. It hey. And it's cheaper than mining lithium. Yeah. So it, because sulfur is everywhere. You know, I don't want my guest next to Jennifer. Volcano. She's using sulfur batteries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's yeah. almost like a joke. Yeah. What's that smell? Yeah. Oh, it's your sulfur <laughs> batteries? Okay. All right. yeah. I, was, I thought maybe yeah. you, you dealt one. You dealt it? No, no, no. It's his computer, not him. You can smell it. In Australia, the University of Australia, they've discovered how to use, in place of lithium, they use sulfur. sulfur. And it, it's much more energy dense. Hmm. It'll probably, as soon as Joby gets a hold of one of these, they'll be able to fly longer and farther with a much well, more high density. It depends on how much pack. heavier it is. I imagine that the no, weight difference between it's, it's lithium and sulfur so, is huge. So it behooves us then to find well, sulfur deposits. Sulfur deposits. Yeah, well, there's plenty of sulfur. Oh, yeah. there is? It's, not, it's not as rare as yes. lithium? Yeah. No, it's not. It's much easier to mine. You can get sulfur for your bath and yeah. different... Sulfur is very common. It's very plentiful. Yeah. Huh? Well, that's good to know. In fact, onions have sulfur in them. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. That's why they... Yeah. <laughs> that's why they smell? Yeah. So right. you can get it out of the ground. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the ER2, as they call it now, instead of the U2, it will be flying up to about 70,000 feet at 410 knots. NASA has two of them. They got one in 1981 and the other in 89. They've already flown over 4,500 missions across six continents, already collecting a lot of data. 
the original name for the U-2 was called the Dragon Lady. It was a Lockheed spy plane. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It was very famous for, remember, uh, Francis Gary Powers was shot down over Soviet territory. And he was taken prisoner by, yeah, by the it, Russians. Yeah, they captured him. Yeah. Right, right. I said, no, we're not spying. Oh, yes, you are. Here's your spy man. <laughs> Here's the remnants of your plane. It's being used to find these earth materials to support our national security and our national economy. Such materials are considered critical because it would be a negative impact on the economy and our country if we did not have enough of these materials. And there are apparently many undiscovered deposits throughout the desert areas. Now, what's interesting about this technology is that it undoubtedly will be soon be applied in commercial scanning of the planet, looking for materials worthy of mining that we use in our industrial society. Is that a good thing? I think so, because it means less people digging holes and destroying the environment by looking for things. They'd be able to look for it from the air, from airplanes. Now, in this project, they're using the U-2 spy plane, but they're also using a Gulfstream 5 jet for looking for materials, which means, given the range of how different those two airplanes are, that it should be possible for many, many commercial miners to look for materials from the air. And so we'll probably see an increase in that activity, for better or for worse. Should we be extracting even material from the planet? Is that even a good thing at this point in our our evolution? Or should we focus mostly on recycling uh, materials that are already out there, that have been mined already, and that we just need to reutilize things more wisely? Would that be a higher option? Recycling is always nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'll see. (laughs) It just seems to me that the recycling world has been kind of slow, probably because there's not as much money in it as creating original. Well, the whole thing about recycling is that Mm. nobody has explored how to do it cost effectively. And so, you know, like we have a computer that we know we need to recycle and it has lots of valuable trace metals in it. But getting at those individual things after they've been glued to plastic boards and, you know, basically polluted by using them, the extraction back into a useful form industry hasn't formed yet. Or it has. I mean, I remember we used to get paid to recycle these computers, but those programs have ended a long time ago. There is aluminum because it costs so much money to take electricity and electrolysis to extract aluminum out of ore. Mm -hmm. It's much cheaper just to heat up the aluminum and recycle it than it is to extract it out of the earth. Uh So aluminum works very well for recycling. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I really hope that we get smarter about managing our creation processes so that we're not wasting things and so that we're doing things with a view to the long term, not just the next paycheck. You know, that that's really our incentives will shift back to sustainability when it's based on making the earth a better place and not wasting things and not polluting things. We should just look at Sweden and their discovery of these rare earth metals in the north of Sweden will make Sweden the richest UE country in the EU. Mm -hmm. So in the coming future here. So right now, China has a corner on the market Mm -hmm. of these strategic metals, these very rare earth metals. And so we need alternatives. If we can't get it here on the planet, we have to go to space and capture one of those asteroids and bring (laughs) it back down. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. extract the asteroid belt. 
maybe that's not the best idea initially. It'll be about 10 years. So, but yeah. in the meantime, we should just look in the deserts in our backyard. Yeah, and exactly. See if we got these things. Well, by the way, I saw the first episode for All Mankind on Apple TV this week, and mm. it's all about asteroid mining. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It's, about, it's, it's all about, about failed attempts to asteroid mine. <laughs> well, the first one. It has <laughs> naturally, but you have to have some drama in television, so they naturally have a disaster happen with an asteroid mining operation. Right. So the first movie that talked about that, I remember, was Alien. Oh yes, yes, asteroid mining and the alien living out there, and 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 uh there were (laughs) they were the miners coming back, and they were told to look at the planet on the way back, and what they find, well, they they run across an alien. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, asteroid mining is a big topic. As long as there's been mining, I think asteroid mining is a natural to think of, and a lot of science fiction on that. Asimov's first story was about an asteroid called Marooned Off Vesta. And he published that back in 1939. So yeah, the asteroids are a fascinating area to explore. And we're, we're actually starting to do that more in detail now, which is really cool. What are we talking about? What are you doing, Mrs. Future? Welcome back. Oh, I'm back. <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. Future. Are we on? We are. We're live. Okay, we're back. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back, Bobby. Yeah. We're- we had more space news. What came in this morning was really interesting, and I thought we'd try to fit it in because it, it, it's a medical news. It intrigued me. It was a piece in Freethink called A Single Injection of Stem Cells Slashes Risk of Heart Attack or Stroke by 58%. Yeah, this is 58%. really big news. We have a new weapon against heart failure, according to this piece. Which traditional medicine says there's so little that you can do. All you can do is manage your disease, but... Yeah. This is actually gives much more hope than that. They say that more than 6 million Americans live with chronic heart failure. That's where the heart just can't pump as well as it should. It means the rest of the body isn't getting as much oxygen as it needs, which leads to organ damage and unconsciousness and death. So right now, docs confirm a diagnosis of heart weakness by looking at the percentage of available blood that leaves the heart with each pump. This is called left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF, with a normal level of around 55 to 70 percent. If you're less than 40, you are actually diagnosed with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And there's no cure for it. And if it's dire, if you're lucky, you get a heart transplant, but they're in short supply, the donor hearts. Medications, lifestyle changes, surgery can slow down its progression maybe alleviate some of the symptoms, but still the long-term outcome, not so great. It inexorably gets worse and worse. So in this particular study, they were using stem cells to target inflammation because inflammation is closely associated with heart failure. And that occurs when the immune system sends cells to fight the disease or injury. And it's usually a temporary thing with the body, but chronic inflammation, if it lasts too long in the heart, can be dangerous. So how do you deal with sustained low levels of inflammation that are irritating your blood vessels? It causes growth of plaque, it can loosen plaque in your arteries, it can trigger blood clots, and that's the primary cause of heart attacks and strokes, those blood clots. So a company called Mesoblast, M-E-S-O, Blast, Mesoblast, they're in the field of regenerative medicine, regenerative medicine. And they've developed a heart failure treatment that directly targets inflammation. It contains a type of stem cell known as anti-inflammatory stem cell called mesenchymal precursor cell, 
or MPC, mesokinal precursor cells. And these stem cells come from your bone marrow of healthy adult donors. They take some of these stem cells and they multiply them in the lab so you have many more than what you sampled than in inject them into the patient. And these cells directly address inflammation. They have little receptors for inflammatory substances called interleukins and other kinds as well. And when you put them into an inflamed heart, it activates those cells and the cells go, wow, we need to respond. This house is on fire. We need to put out the fire. And then they secrete various anti-inflammatories. <laughs> so they had the trial and the results have been published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. 537 patients received an injection of about 150 million MPCs straight into the muscular tissue of their hearts or a placebo. And they were also receiving standard heart failure treatment at the time of the trial. The results were that the adverse event rates were similar between the treatment and the placebo groups. And none of those who received stem cells showed signs of an immune-related response to the therapy, suggesting that the treatment is safe and well-tolerated. But sadly, the trial didn't meet its primary endpoint, which is a reduction in the frequency of hospitalization for heart failure, decompensated heart failures, meaning that their hearts were no longer functioning following treatment. The measure was similar between placebo and treatment. But the good news is that it did meet the other pre-specified endpoints, which were reduced risk of a heart attack or stroke. That actually, over an average of 30 months of follow-up, Patients who did receive the treat saw their risk drop by 58% compared to those in the placebo group. If you had a blood marker indicating high levels of inflammation, then the reduction was even greater, 75%. It's the first time that stem cells have been successfully treating the inflammation that causes heart failure. Yeah, hmm. it's very encouraging. Yeah. The way that they can mine those little teeny weeny baby blood cells and feed them the inflammation that's destroying the circulatory system and the veins and the arteries and the heart. And then once those little baby blood cells eat up the inflammation, then they help grow new, healthier surfaces so that you have less of a problem with your heart disease. Yeah. Hmm. I think it's very interesting now because COVID, the properties of the spike protein, what it does, it, it causes this inflammation throughout the body. And especially that's why we have these high incidences of heart attacks in young adults, hmm. which didn't exist before COVID. So this so, could help in those circumstances um, too with the Yes, COVID absolutely. What they found recently is vitamin K2 is very effective in this. And what's really happening is there is this von factor that causes this inflammation and sends out the signal and it causes blood clots in the system, especially either in the heart or in the brain and people get strokes. But they find that the vitamin K2 actually dissolves this fibrin, which the von Willebrand factor produces. So it reduces this fibrin. It's kind of a cholesterol. It's kind of a white fabric that is generated and is a netting system that causes a blood clot. So, hmm. you know, I think this in combination with just eating natto, you know, or taking vitamin K2 would help tremendously in these And natto is a Japanese food? That's a good source yeah, of K2? What, what, is that what you're saying? Fermented soybeans. So when you go to the sushi restaurant, you can order it. It's an acquired taste. It smells like 
old socks or something, you know. It, it doesn't have it, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Boy, you're quite the salesman there, Bobby. Yeah, but, <laughs> An acquired taste, huh? <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure I want to acquire that taste. Maybe I'll just plug my nose and try it. <laughs> but it's kind of like avocados. The first avocado you eat, you're not really sure about. But after a while, it kind of grows on you. Yeah, in I felt Japan, that way about coffee. In Japan, you know, most of the population in the morning eats little spoonfuls of this natto every morning. These people love it. You know, right. I love it. I, that's what I do well, every day. Well, they yeah. have very good it's statistics on longevity, don't they? All right. Well, cool. We'll, yeah. we'll have to uh, explore that and get back to you on it. So we're in the last two minutes here. I think we should give our folks a little intro to what's coming up in the next yeah, I will, hour. I will, I will do that. I also wanted to mention that Starship is going to be testing next Friday, the launch Friday. Starship, the launch Friday, second attempt to reach orbit. Woohoo! Be going All right. Out. Good luck, everybody. And, Good uh, luck, SpaceX. One of the great astronauts, uh, Frank Borman, recently passed. Mm. You'll see a lot of uh, biographies for him in the news of yeah. late. He was Apollo 8, oh. the one that the first uh, ship that went around the moon where they read the Bible, Genesis, got the first picture of the Earth rising above the And moon. the dark side of the moon. He's probably the first one to see the dark side of the moon. The dark yeah, side the of the moon with the Earth rising or setting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The picture, that very famous picture of the earth rise was taken on one of his flights. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he is passed on 95. He was the head of Eastern Airlines after being in the astronaut corps. Quite a legacy. One of our American heroes, for real. When heroes were heroes. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah, a long time. Okay. So we'll be talking about uh, the wisdom of Brema next. We'll be talking to Dr. Alexandra Johnson an MD who is trained in this world of more holistic wisdom for health. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. All right, folks. Enjoy the commercial break here, and we'll be back six minutes after the hour with our guest. Yeah. Enjoy. Talk to you shortly. Shirley. 